Welcome to episode three of It Depends. Today, we are going to be talking about incentives. Incentives are one of the most complicated things to deal with. I find it's one of the things that defines libertarians as opposed to people who are not libertarians, is we think about incentives a lot more. So what are incentives? Well, there's a lot of definitions. At their most basic, it's anyone that motivates someone or is intended to motivate someone to do something or to make a decision or to not do something. Incentives can encourage good or bad behavior. Sometimes the encouragement may actually seem irrational. You may get results that don't seem to fit. There are lots of types of incentives. Some people break it into two or three or four, but pretty much everyone believes that one of the types of incentives is financial or economic incentives. This can include things like money, stock options, discounts, frequent buyer programs at a grocery store. It can also include fines. At some level, it also includes things like incarceration since you can't work. There are also social incentives. These are often approval or disapproval. It can include compliments. It can include public recognition or rewards. At some level, prison also is a social incentive. You are separated from society. There can be moral incentives. These are essentially internal. You feel good about being a good person or doing something good, or you feel guilt or feel bad for doing something or thinking that you're bad in some way. These are the only incentives that are really hard to affect in other people, although education, training, and brainwashing can, of course, affect people's morality, and that would change their own internal moral incentives. Then there are coercive incentives. And I've already discussed some coercive incentives that are financial or social, and most of them are, in fact, financial or social, but some don't fit. So, for example, if you are a parent and you ground your child, maybe that's a social incentive, but it doesn't really fit that well. But what about spanking a child? And I'm not getting into the morality of whether that's good or bad, but if someone is spanking a child or threatening to spank a child, that's not really a social or a moral or a financial incentive. So it is a fourth type of incentive. Now, anytime we change rules, we will tend to change incentives. You set a new rule for your family, and that will change the incentives for people in that family. The government sets new rules for society, that will change the incentives. And companies often change incentives to encourage, hopefully, employees to do good things and not do things they don't want to do. Uh, much of the tax code, which I spend a lot of time looking at, of course, is a series of incentives. About 1% of the tax code says you owe money. About 99% of the tax code says unless, and every one of those unlesses is an incentive. These incentives are very powerful. It's why so many people buy houses in America. There is a major tax advantage. It's why so many people who invest, invest in real estate. There are huge tax advantages, and so those incentives do affect behavior. Now, unfortunately, while some incentives work really well to get what people want done, there are what are called perverse incentives, where you end up with the opposite of what you are trying to incentivize, or the stated uh, goal of the incentive. A major example of this, or it's sometimes called the COBRA effect. So the COBRA effect occurred when the British ruled India. And I've seen some things that say this is apocryphal, but there does seem to be some evidence that at least was tried in areas of India, if not all of India, 
where the British had a problem with the number of cobras that were in India. They were causing problems. So the British put out a bounty where if you killed a cobra and brought it in, they would pay you money. Unfortunately, the amount they were paying was a lot of money. And so a lot of people in India started breeding cobras and then they would kill them and bring them in. And so a plan that was expected to cost one amount of money ended up costing something like 10 times that. And at some point, the British realized that people were cheating. So they stopped the program. And then everyone let their cobras out into the wild. But now there were many, many, many more cobras than there would have been if they had never put up the incentive in the first place. And this happens a lot. It can happen in a private company. It can happen in a family. But the bigger the group, the more likely it is that an incentive will be too broad or too big. And that is why most of these perverse incentives often are a result of some sort of governmental regulation or law. The Endangered Species Act actually creates some very perverse incentives. First of all, animals aren't just added to the endangered species list. It takes time. It has to be proposed. And there's research. It generally takes 18 months to two years to do that. Well, what happens to everyone who has those animals on their land? They quickly kill them all or they develop the land. If it's a wetland, they'll fill it in to get rid of the invasive species because people don't want their land to be worthless. It also encourages a phenomenon known as shoot, shovel, and shut up. Once an animal is on the land, people will have a tendency to kill that animal before somebody finds out about it, and then they'll just bury it and not tell anybody about it. So there are times that by trying to protect certain endangered species, we may actually result in many more of them being killed, particularly in the short term. And even if in the long term we do encourage them, we've seriously affected the genetic variety of the species, which may result in that species not being viable anymore. Recent law or regulation was passed January 2023, where now every food manufacturer has to say whether there is sesame in the food. And I didn't know this, but sesame is actually like the 12th or 11th biggest allergen or most common allergen in America. Thankfully, it tends to not be like, say, peanuts, where it kills a lot of people, but it can be very bad for young children. So a regulation was put into effect that you have to say whether or not – well, you have to say whether you have sesame or you have to not have sesame in the thing if you don't have it labeled as containing sesame. The problem is – Companies have a legal obligation to make sure the thing is free of an allergen if they're going to not list it as containing the allergen. And many of these companies work with manufacturers and factories that use sesame because sesame is a very popular thing to add to things, and they were afraid about cross-contamination. Well, Olive Garden and Wendy's and Chick-fil-A and many, many other companies have just decided to add sesame to their food. And now they can just put on the label, yes, this contains sesame. This also happens to many bread makers that many schools across the country use. So for the purpose of reducing the amount of sesame or the amount of sesame allergic reactions in foods, we've actually increased the number of foods that have sesame, and we've added it to foods that didn't have it before. So somebody who knew, quote unquote, it was safe to eat an Olive Garden breadstick, well, now it's not safe. Same thing with the Chick-fil-A bread, and in the case of Wendy's, I, I forget if it's the bread or if it's the breading on one of their sandwiches. But we have taken something that is an allergen and 
natural reaction to this regulation, people have added it to more foods. So there's going to be a lot more people getting exposed to this in the near future and a lot fewer options for people to avoiding this. What makes this particularly obscene, in my opinion, is this is not the first time an allergen has been added where a company has done this. So the FDA should have known this was a possibility. In 2016, uh, peanuts were added to the list, and Kellogg's specifically added peter flour to many of their cookie and cracker recipes because it was far cheaper for them to say contains peanuts than to not this contains peanuts and go through all of the rules and regulations to make sure that it was actually peanut free. Now, some people say, well, why would a company do this? Doesn't mean they sell less of it. Not really, because the number of people who are allergic to this is still much less than 1%. In fact, I've seen some numbers are maybe one-tenth of 1%. So even if it costs some company, say, 0.5% of its revenue, well, if it's saving millions of dollars by doing that, it makes a lot of sense. Another relatively recent example is what's known as the Fort Benning pig problem. So Fort Benning in Georgia had a lot of wild pigs that were on the base causing issues. They were getting in the way. They were destroying things. They were actually injuring some of the soldiers who were doing training. And so Fort Benning put out a bounty. Well, most people don't know this, but wild pigs can get pretty big, like a 1,000 pounds big in the case of some of the males. And many of the adult females can still be four or 500 pounds. So they didn't want to make people bring all those pigs in and then have to deal with them. So they just made you bring in the tail. Two big problems came from this. Now, before I get into this, they weren't so stupid that you could just bring them 50 tails and say, give me the money. They also asked for what part of the base you were on when you shot these. And they did track this. And some of the people who cheated, they caught and actually did prosecute. But many people went to local butchers, local farms, etc., and they would just buy pigtails and take them in. And some of them would do this and not hunt any, but there are definitely some cases where people were hunting and maybe they shot four pigs, but they turned in six pigtails. This is not quite a perverse incentive, but the second problem is that they actually put out a lot of bait to bring the pigs out of the forests on the base and into open areas where hunters could shoot them. And that makes a lot of sense, right? It's easier to shoot them when they're out and about, so bring them out. The problem is they provided so much bait that it actually led to a population boom among the pigs. Even with people shooting many of them, the pigs were eating so much that they actually were breeding faster than they were being shot under this program. At the start of the time period, they estimated there were 1,000 wild pigs on the base. They paid out over 1,000 bounties in three years. And by the time they ended the program three years later, they estimated there were more than 2,000 pigs on the base. So not only did they pay a bunch of people a bunch of money for things they shouldn't have, a program designed to get rid of these wild pigs led to a more than doubling of the number. Now, sometimes incentives and perverse incentives can be very irrational. And I'm going to tell you about a personal example that I had. When I was applying for colleges... I applied to four colleges at first, and I basically figured these are the schools I want to go to. If I get into one of them, I'll go there, and then I'll apply to other ones later. On the same day, two different schools accepted me, the University of Dallas and the Catholic University of America. Both of them offered me scholarships, that after the scholarships, the amount of money to attend either of these schools was going to be very similar. 
Now, there were lots of reasons to choose the schools other than that, different programs, where they were, the cost of living, travel costs, etc. From a purely dollars and cents amount, it they were essentially the same. Well, about a week later, I got a letter from the Catholic University of America saying that I was eligible to apply for a full-ride scholarship. And this was a scholarship that they gave out to something like uh, 25 students per year. It was incentivized to bring diversity in terms of geography, so only one person from any state could qualify for this. So all the people in Virginia are competing for one scholarship. All the people in you know Nevada are competing for one scholarship. But there's only 25 of these for the 50 states. But I was in Texas. There are only like eight or nine people who had applied from Texas, I think, who who got into CUA that year. And so I had pretty good odds of getting that scholarship. So I went through the process, had to travel there, had to meet some people, had to be interviewed. It was a really interesting experience to go through that. Maybe a month later, they sent me a letter saying, we're very, very sorry. You didn't get the scholarship, but we're raising your scholarship by $500 a year. It makes no logical sense but that actually pissed me off. Not the fact that I got rejected. I wasn't expecting to get picked because there were still you know, hundreds of people applying for these. I felt like they were trying to buy me. I felt like they were saying, hey, you know, we, we kind of did a bait and switch here on you and we don't want you to be upset. How about $500 more? And I've seen this happen with other people. I had a, a coworker who got a raise. They, they gave him more money. But the amount of the raise was so relatively small, especially since it was in 2022, so a year with very, very high inflation, that he was actually upset. He thought about quitting over the raise, where, frankly, if they had given him no raise, if they had said, sorry, the economy sucks, and money's tight, and there's no raise, he would have been upset, but he would have been less upset than the size of his raise. Frankly, I've had that experience as well a raise of, you know, maybe one or 2% that it's like, why are you even bothering? The same thing can happen with the bonuses. You know, somebody making $30,000 a year, a thousand dollar bonus is a lot of money. Somebody making a half million dollars a year, a thousand dollars is kind of a, you know, rounding error. Not only may they not be incentivized to try to fight for it, they may kind of actively get annoyed about it and almost avoid doing the thing because they don't care so much. Another example I know of where there was a perverse incentive, but there was actually a good incentive. We've all been driving around and we see something like, oh, this this car being driven by a student driver. And when I say that, see that, I, I'm very thankful for those stickers. I drive very carefully around those people. I give them a little more slack. I am very careful passing them to make sure they don't lose control or something. But I do remember when I was in high school and there were some 17 and 18-year-olds who were frankly assholes. They would intentionally give those people a hard time. They would intentionally tailgate them or honk at them or, or do other things to mess with them as a new driver. And so here we see that where an incentive can have a very beneficial effect overall, it can still result in some negatives. This follows the same pattern as many other incentives where the more people being incentivized, the more likely that at least at some level there will be a perverse incentive. If you make a rule for one person, well, you can tailor that rule for that one person. You could make a mistake, but it's pretty likely it's going to work. If you're making an incentive for 10 people in a department of a company, there's a pretty good chance that you can write some sort of a rule that will be pretty good for those 10 people. 
Now, maybe it gives a bad incentive to one of those people, but if it's a beneficial incentive to nine people, you've still benefited as the company. You're probably pretty happy. The second we have an incentive for thousands of people or millions of people, or in some cases, billions of people, well, now there's a lot more likelihood you haven't tailored it very well. It's very easy to ignore what we call second and third and fourth order effects. Okay, people do the thing you want, but what else are they doing you don't want to do? Another very recent example of this came out of a number of South American countries. To limit driving, they said, okay, your license plate is an odd number or an even number. Only odd-numbered license plate vehicles can drive on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and then even can drive on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays. Everybody can drive on Sundays. This was to reduce the amount of gas being used and to improve air quality was a big one of these goals. But so many families needed to drive around daily that they went out and they bought another car. Well, you may see, okay, that, that kind of costs them money, but what's the big deal? Well, the cars they tended to buy were really, really cheap cars that polluted a lot more. And so if people had just driven their one relatively new car, they would have polluted a lot less than driving two cars, one of which was far older and polluted far more. Now, not everybody did this, although it was estimated that maybe 10% of people did it. But some of the various studies showed that there was actually more pollution with that 10% of people cheating than there would have been if they had done nothing. So anytime you're setting a rule for a bunch of people, especially when there's not any sort of a moral incentive to not cheat, you're going to find there tend to be more and more perverse incentives. And that's why I brought up moral incentives earlier on, because moral incentives, you, ca you can't cheat them. They're their own personal moral incentive. But one moral incentive that tends to be very strong in most human beings is loyalty, is honesty, particularly for the group. Some people may cheat, lie, steal against anybody, but most people tend to be honest with their family and their friends and their coworkers. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are also societal, but some of them are just we care more about being good to those who we know. The second you have thousands of people out there who are all being incentivized, well, now there's not much moral incentive other than the general, oh, I want to follow the law or be a good person. So what do we do? We need to be a lot more careful in our families, in our companies, in our churches, in our friend groups about how we set up incentives. The more incentives we set up and the bigger incentives we set up, the more likely we are to end up in a case where we have perverse incentives, incentives that do a lot more harm than good. A second thing would be making sure that politicians understand that we know that the more rules and regulations they pass, the more likely there are to be these perverse incentives. And if they're going to do them, and of course, I don't want them to, but if they're going to do them, they need to think things through a lot more carefully. Again, the FDA knew about the incentives to adding things to the allergen list could cause people to add those allergens into food, but they did it anyway. From what I've seen, there was no discussion about the fact of, hey, guys, we did this before and it didn't really work out. Are we sure we should do this? No, they just did it. And this is why every good libertarian is always looking at what are the incentives. We don't care really what the stated goals are. You know, the stated goal could be we're going to save the world. But what if the incentives mean that we destroy the world? It's not that hard to do. 
Well, thank you for listening to another episode of It Depends. I am Matthew Sersely. If you're listening to this, please like and subscribe. If you liked it, please share it with a friend. If you didn't like it, please share it with an enemy. And I'll talk to you later.